we've been doing in the book of Luke uh, called, uh, what's it called? Urgent uh, Care. Luke's Urgent Care, yeah. Urgent Care. Luke's Urgent Care. Uh, we have been going to the book of Luke at a short brain lapse there. Uh, we've been going to the book of Luke over the past few weeks and looking at very small passages in the book of Luke, four verses or less, and trying to make a meaningful impact, a deep impact uh, on our lives and on our Christian walk. And we've, we've covered a lot of different passages, a lot of different uh, sections in the book of Luke. Uh, and tonight is, is the conclusion of that. We've, we've gone pretty much all throughout the book of Luke looking at things that uh, uh, Luke records Jesus saying, and Luke being the physician of the group. Uh, he, he includes details that other Gospels don't include, and, and we've really enjoyed looking at those details and, and, and bringing them out and, and showing uh, just how meaningful they can be. And tonight, our study of uh, Luke's urgent care concludes in Luke chapter 10, in Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 21, Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 21. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it, and to hear what you hear and have not heard it. So the, this, at the beginning of our text, Luke records that in that hour, Jesus was rejoicing in the Spirit at the beginning of our text tonight. And before we get into what happens in the text, why is Jesus rejoicing in the Spirit? What, what in the context that happens before our text tonight leads him to this uh, uh, rejoicing in the Spirit? I think it's significant that if you travel back to chapter 9 to get some broader context, if you go back to verse 51 through verse 56, Jesus is rejected entrance into a Samaritan village. He's on his way to Jerusalem, and his disciples are sent to prepare, prepare a place for him to stay, but the, the people in that village don't want him, so he's rejected. And then if you look at verses uh, 57 through 62, the, he's going to come in contact with three different individuals. Uh, he, will, he will have at least one of those individuals offer to be a disciple. Two of them he'll invite himself, but none of them are really ready to do it. So once again, there is a sense of rejection here. And then you get to chapter 10. He commissions these 72 disciples to go out on a missionary campaign. Uh, they are going out to uh, proclaim the gospel. And when they return, they return with a joyous report, we're told. You can see that report in verse 70, uh, 17. They returned with joy, saying, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And, and so Jesus is on the heels of two rejections, essentially. 
the, the rejection of the Samaritan village, the rejection of the potential disciples, and then, but this overwhelming success with the, the campaign of the 72. So in context, there is a, a, a sense in which his joy has this background of failure and success that's uh, leading up to it. And, and he's going to build off of that as he starts talking about uh, the kingdom here with these disciples. But the first thing I notice is the, the joy Jesus is experiencing is playing off of these events that preceded it where there is failure and there is success. There is rejection and there is acceptance. Yeah, uh, I, I love the fact that it seems the 72 come back and they seem excited and joyful because of the amazing, powerful things they witnessed. And Jesus, it seems like, kind of puts a, a damper on that. Like, and if you look at verse 20, um, it's kind of like whoop de doo you know? You know, this is the thing you really need to be rejoicing at, that your name's written in the, in the book of life in, in heaven. Um, and it seems as if he's not excited about the things they were excited about. And so that's, I think that's one of the things I like about verse 21, is it says, in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Spirit or in the Holy Spirit. Um, in reality, I think he really was excited for the things they had experienced. You know, maybe he was trying to shift their perspective a little bit, but I love that uh, Jesus is excited when his friends do awesome things in his name, and that's, I think that's pretty remarkable and worth mentioning. I think, uh, <clears throat> I mean, uh, in line with what uh, Kyle said, um, Jesus saw rejection and, uh, and also acceptance. And rejection and acceptance means rejection to repentance. Acceptance means acceptance of the gospel. Uh, so I think uh, uh, chapter 10, verse 13, uh, from verse 13, Jesus uh, laments over the cities which, were, uh, which didn't repent. So Jesus is really focused on the repentance. Because that's what Jesus wanted to see happen. And Jesus preached the gospel to all, peop to all people. And some people accepted it, some people rejected it. So what Jesus is really, really uh, rejoiced about here is about the people who received the repentance. And that's why I think uh, Jesus corrected the point of pleasure of the disciples. The, uh, when the disciples came back from the campaign, they were, you know, they were so uh, astonished and they were so pleased that uh, he, they saw uh, miraculous things. But Jesus pointed out that you have to uh, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. How can our names can be written in heaven? as we repent, as we accept the gospel, as we obey the gospel. So uh, I think the focus that Jesus has here for his rejoice, for his joy, is the acceptance of you know, repentance. And another thing I could see here, I can see here uh, as Jesus feeling why he is uh, so joyful is that Probably Jesus also was disappointed with the people who rejected. You know, Jesus performed many miracles, like uh, he fed 5,000 people, men, uh, 5,000 men, and there were other 
you know, women and children. But not those all, I mean, all of those people didn't believe Jesus. We know on the Pentecost, uh, only, I shouldn't say only, but you know, 3,000 people were baptized. But the people who ate the miraculous meal was 5,000. Only a man were 5,000. There was uh, more many people, I mean, more people there. So I think Jesus was a little bit disappointed with the you know, result of his preaching because not, I mean, not all people accepted the gospel. So, uh, and, but Jesus is saying that, oh, this is the will of God. I don't have to worry about those who reject our gospel. So I think his pleasure, I mean, his joy uh, maybe for the realization or understanding of God's will or the reality of, of the evangelism also. And I want to point one other thing out where it says that Jesus rejoiced. The term translated rejoice there, the Greek term being translated is referring to excitement, exuberance. It's, uh, it's being thrilled about something. I think this is significant because this is one of those times where we get a peek into Jesus having emotions like we do. Oftentimes we'll go to um, uh, times when he cried, or we'll go to times when he got angry, but this is the emotion that we don't talk about as much. Jesus is thoroughly excited right now. I, like, I mean, think, think about the most exciting moment in your life. Think about your, your team winning a championship or something like that. When you, the expressions that you had, the emotions you went through, the the, the excitement that built up for you, that's what Jesus has, and it has nothing to do with sports. It has nothing to do with anything of any insignificance. It has everything to do with the kingdom of God. And he is just thrilled at what's happened. And I think we need to understand the significance of that emotion happening here. Let me, I got to jump in. Just one more quick thing, because this, this, is, this is exciting to me to talk about, is that it almost seems natural that he has this spiritual joy, and it just you know, goes right into prayer. Like, he's yeah. just, like, standing yeah. there and just starts praising God, like, right there. Um, and, I, and I think I am so slow to do that. Uh, my joy ends up, you know, I'll celebrate with other people, but that to so naturally transition and go into prayer, um, and I see that in our, our leadership here at the church. I think, I think when we have these spiritual milestones and significant things, um, you know, like, like, like we, we celebrated, I guess, just to bring up the baby recognition in prayer this morning, is that I, I know the leadership had a desire to, we're going we're gonna to sing and we're going to pray. We're going to direct our celebration to God. And, and I see that in this text, and it challenges me. Yeah, yeah and I, I, I love what y'all are saying. It's, it is very, very powerful to think about Jesus just taking a moment to rejoice in all the good that's going on. Because in, in a lot of senses, Jesus didn't have that many times where he could do that. There was always something connects, always something down, down line. And I think it's, you know, especially for us as, as ministers and, and people that serve in the church, to, to take some moments just to step back and, and be grateful to God over the good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Be grateful to God over the good things that are happening uh, among us and in our community and, and, and in our lives and in our families and, and just taking a, a moment to just, to just be grateful to God 
And that's exactly what you see Jesus doing here. Um, But it's interesting what Luke records, at least, of this prayer. Uh, Jesus, it seems like he's, he's thanking God for something that's a little bit confusing, at least to our lenses in the 21st century. So the question I have is, you know, Jesus... Here in verse 21, he is thanking the Father that his identity, that the true identity of the Messiah has been hidden from others. Read it with me. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. So my question is, why, why does Jesus prefer that the identity of the Messiah be hidden from some, why, why does it make sense for Jesus to consistently tell his disciples over and over again throughout the Gospels, whenever he heals someone, he says, hey, don't tell anybody what you saw. Why does he go from town to town and do these wonderful things and say, hey, but don't, don't go and tell people about it? And in, in scholarly circles, this is known as the messianic secret in some of our studies that we've had. So I just wanted to take a moment and and ask, why is Jesus, first and foremost, as Luke records, why why is he thanking God that the identity of Christ has been masked or hidden from others? Okay, go ahead, Mingus. It's for test. It's for test. Um, Jesus really wanted to see people obey the gospel when Jesus preached the gospel. But if Jesus' identity was revealed fully to people, then some people would almost automatically uh, uh, pretend to believe in him instead of really obeying him through the gospel. So Jesus came in our flesh, in the flesh, in our form, in the form of slave. And Jesus went around, and people didn't, uh, didn't know who he, who he was, really. But only through his words and only through his acts and only through the revelation through him, the word of God, people can understand, that, uh, understand who Jesus was. And so Jesus really wanted people to obey the gospel with true, real determination in their heart to the, I mean, after hearing the gospel. So I think uh, Jesus uh, didn't want to reveal his identity fully by miracles. And I mean, people asked for signs and miracles uh, to test him if, if he was, you know, someone. Um, but but Jesus rejected, you know, the occasions. So I think the reason why Jesus didn't want to want his uh, identity to be revealed fully before the time was that to get true believers through the gospel. I also think Jesus wanted to avoid popularity. Now, that sounds strange, uh, considering he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey with everybody celebrating. 
But if you, if you really think back to, to uh, Jesus' life in ministry for that brief period of time, uh, he did not care about popularity at all. See, here's the thing. Popularity would interfere with his overall mission. If you go back to Luke chapter 8 in the very first verse, you kind of get a glimpse of, of what his primary task was. He was proclaiming the gospel. He was uh, uh, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, according to Luke chapter 8 and verse 1. That's, that was his overall mission. Now, now, here's the problem. When you get popular, when you get a recognition, when you get a name for miracles, as, as Mingu's talking about, that would take precedence over everything he wants to teach and everything he wants to communicate and everything he wants to say. He wouldn't be able to sit down and give the Sermon on the Mount because he would, he would have a constant line of people to heal. And, and Jesus wanted to get the message of the kingdom out. So, for instance, in uh, Luke, I'm, I'm sorry, in Mark's gospel, Mark is the one who presents this messianic secret, this idea of Jesus asking people not to say anything the most. Mark ha is the most filled with that. But in Mark chapter 1, verse 43 and verse 44, he heals a leper and then tells that leper, don't tell anybody. You know what the leper does? He turns around and goes and tells everybody. <laughs> and he doesn't get in trouble for disobeying Jesus. I think that's fascinating, but that's a total different lesson. Anyway, he goes around and tells everybody. And we're told in Mark chapter 1, verse 44, that after that leper went around and told everybody, hey, that guy just healed me, Jesus could no longer openly enter a town. That's the problem, is once, once that message of, hey, this guy can heal, opens up, he can't even go into communities and proclaim the gospel like he wants to. And think about the feeding of the 5,000. When he completed that, what did the people try to do? They tried to do, take him by force and make him king. Popularity becomes a hindrance to the overall mission. And so, he was, uh, so there's a sense in which he doesn't want his identity to leak too quickly because once it does, he can't contain it. He can't control it. He can't fulfill his ultimate objective. And so there's a sense in that. But I also think what Mingus was trying to say is important, too, because popularity will attract the would-be disciples, would attract the, hey, I'm doing this because it would be cool right now. I'm doing this because it's the fad right now. We have that problem even today among Christianity because every once in a while Christianity becomes cool and acceptable and, and becomes something that, that is okay in a cultural sense. And that's when, you, when you'll attract the people who, who aren't all in, who aren't sold out, who aren't uh, committed. And I think there's a sense in which he just came off of uh, Luke chapter 9. Jesus just came out of that situation where three individuals had the opportunity to follow him and all chose something else as a priority they, they were potential disciples, not real disciples. And there's a sense in which if he becomes popular, that's what he'll attract instead of the real disciples. And so, so there's a sense in which what Mingu's talking about there, of the, that commitment level wouldn't be there. So I, I, think it's, I think there's a sense in which he's trying to avoid the complications that come with popularity once this gets out of the, the bag. Yeah. Uh, Chrysostom, a so-called early church father, he thought it was because Jesus desired to teach us that we shouldn't boast or seek fame in our accomplishments. Maybe there's something to that. I'm not so sure. Another thing that comes along with popularity is popularity will get you crucified. 
Um, and so uh, I believe that Jesus, who would lay down his life voluntarily in control of the whole situation during his earthly ministry, uh, kind of revealed himself slowly, um, bit by bit, piece by piece, until we have the crescendo that takes place at Passover at, at, his, uh, at his death. And so I think it's just him in control of the situation, and making sure things happen at the right time when the fullness of time is upon us, like Galatians 4 says. That's a great observation because of how many times in the Gospels Jesus is going to say, my time has not yet come. Mm -hmm. And ultimately what he's saying, what, what, what he's doing is by not giving in to the popularity or, or the fame or, or whatever, he's staying in control. I, I love that observation because otherwise he's giving control over to the masses. Yeah, and, and so going out, you know, transitioning to, I think we're going to talk about in a minute, the wise and understanding. The wise and understanding are the ones that are going to nail him to a cross. And so... Uh, it's good to keep that hidden from them for a while. Mm. You know, you, you brought up Mark being the main driver of this uh, idea of Jesus telling people not to talk about what they had seen or what they had experienced. Uh, we have it in our notes uh, eight times that Mark includes Jesus saying something like, don't, don't tell anybody what you've seen. And almost every time, just like, just like Kyle points out, they can't help themselves. They can't help themselves but to tell others what Jesus had done in their life. They couldn't control themselves from telling others about what Jesus had done in their life. And I, I asked the question to us tonight, maybe just to think about really quick, when was the last time you couldn't control yourself from telling others what Jesus had done in your life? I think that's a, a powerful thought, and, and maybe you've never felt that way. And if that's the case, why is that the case? Because what Jesus has done in your life is just as amazing as what he did in, in, in the lives of these individuals. So, <clears throat> on Craig, transitioning into our next question, Jesus differentiates between the wise and prudent and the babes. And so there's another aspect to this where Jesus is, is I think, rejoicing in the spirit that, that he's not numbered among these quote-unquote wise and prudent people. Because just to be obvious, the wise and prudent are the religious elite in society. We're going to get into that in a second. It's almost like Jesus is rejoicing in the spirit that, that he is... And his ministry doesn't have to be numbered with these frauds. Because in a large respect, the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious elite of the day had lost all their credibility among the people. And so maybe that's why Jesus is rejoicing some uh, in our text tonight. So as we were alluding to, the wise and prudent and the babes are differentiated in this passage um, in verse 21, I just want to point out a quote here from Jesus when he says he is grateful that these things have been hidden from the wise and prudent. He says, even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. Is there anything you want to mention about the wise and prudent here, or the babes, or especially this almost behind-the-scenes comment between Jesus and the Father where Jesus is like, you know, like we talked about, we wanted the babes, not the wise and the prudent. For so it seemed good in your sight. Anything you want to mention on that? 
Uh, so I like the Dark Knight movie, and, and one of the themes in that movie is Joker is the bad guy, and he's, he, he, he turns Harvey Dent, who is like this shining light in Gotham City, who's this super good guy, and is able to turn him evil and turn him bad. And, and the point he's trying to make is I can take any super good person and make them bad. That's kind of one of the themes that comes out in the movie. Uh, God says, I'll do one better. And in reality, not in a work of fiction. Uh, and Paul is the idea that comes out to me. Paul is, as he says in 1 Timothy, so beautifully, 1 Timothy 1, he's the chief, the foremost of sinners. And basically God, in a way to make an example and show, hey, I can take the worst of sinners and I can make them into the biggest uh, of uh, preachers and uh, Christians, basically. I'm going to take Paul and do that work, and he did. And so to me, that's what, when, I, when I look at this text, uh, that's when I think about wise and understanding and contrast it to little children, that's what I see, is that if, if it had been only available to the wise and understanding, then I would have to be wise and prudent understanding to get it. And that would disqualify a lot of people. Or I don't have to be rich to get it. Or I don't have to be a male to get it. Um, and so to me, that's the beauty of it. And that, I think, relates to your question about it's the gracious will of God. It is his will that he uses the common and uneducated men to do this work here to show, hey, if they can do it, if a poor widow can be pleasing in my sight, then anybody can be. And so to me, that's one of the big messages um, if the least of these can get it, you don't have to be wise and understanding, and that's pleasing to God. Okay, um, First Corinthians chapter uh, one verse thirty, uh, he says, "I mean, the Paul says he is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom. So Jesus Christ is our wisdom." I think uh, Jesus Christ is our wisdom. Jesus Christ is the true wisdom and understanding. If we don't understand him, why he was uh, crucified, why he uh, had to suffer uh, by the sinners, we are not wise. <laughs> so uh, true wisdom is to know Jesus. True wisdom is to know uh, is to understand God's plan of salvation through Jesus Christ. But earthly wisdom doesn't understand it. I mean, wise people in the world and the people who are praised uh, by their being you know, wise and understanding in the world, not all of them, or, of them but you know, many of them don't understand why Jesus? Why Jesus is our wisdom? Why Jesus is our savior? Why we can be, sa we can be saved only through Jesus Christ? So I think that uh, these things that, was, that were hidden uh, to the wisdom, I mean, wise and understanding is the gospel. The Jesus, I mean, Jesus gospel, the, the gospel of the kingdom. So uh, you know, I think uh, wisdom and understanding are defined differently from those who think, uh, who we, I mean, which we think uh, in the worldly sense. So understanding the gospel, accepting Jesus, repent, repenting our sins, 
is the true wisdom here. I think there's one other thing to notice when it comes to the differentiation between wise and prudent and, and the, the little children or babes. Wise and prudent are the ones who think they can earn the kingdom. The little babes are the ones that understand it's something that's received. Mm -hmm. So just go back to the commission of the 72, uh, or, the, or the report of the 72 back in verse 17. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. In that one little phrase, they're acknowledging that what they accomplish has nothing to do with them. It has everything to do with Jesus. The demons are subject to them not because of them, but because of his name. The, the little children understand that they're not... They're not great. They're not capable of, of doing anything great. They only do something great because of Christ. So I, it made me think, as uh, Craig was talking about Paul earlier, it made me think about his resume he gives in Philippians chapter 3. Mm -hmm. Before he met Christ, he thought he was great. Because he talks about the fact that, that he's circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul thought he was something. He was wise and he was prudent. But then he encountered Christ on the road to, to, to Damascus, and he discovered that he was nothing. And now, at the, by the end of Philippians, he's saying, I can do all things, not because of me, but because of Christ who lives in me. I can do all things because of Christ. The, the wise and prudent think they are capable on their own, they think they can earn what they need. The little children understand that it's not about them. It's about Christ. That's a perfect transition into our, our next thought here. In our day and age, perhaps there are a lot of Christians more so numbered in the wise and prudent category than in the babe category. And so tonight, as Christians you know, at the Buford Church of Christ, how can we be like these wise and prudent people who Jesus was right in front of them? He was right in front of them, and they missed out on who he was. How can we be like the wise and prudent? And then conversely, how can we be more like these babes who Jesus willed to reveal himself to? Um, I mean, I wanted to point out that one I mean, two verses in Proverbs regarding wise and prudent uh, is chapter 3, Proverbs chapter 3, uh, verse, verse 6. Okay, verse 6 is that, um, oh, no, no. Okay, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. And verse 7 says, be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. So if we happen to trust ourselves and think that we are wise and prudent in our own eyes, in our own mind, that failure comes. So pride, arrogance, you know, leads us to the failure. Um, I, as I was as I was reflecting on verse twenty two, uh, so much of that language. I mean, that to me looks so much. And commentators bring this out. That looks like it came from John's gospel account, 
22 more than any verse I can find. Um, this, this talk about the Father and Son being one, and I'll, I'll bring something out here about that in a minute. I remember reading a story one time where uh, the chaplain at, a chaplain at Harvard would have kids come bursting into his office and they'd say, oh, I just don't believe in God. And the chaplain would respond, well, so tell me the God that you don't believe in because I probably don't believe in him either. Um, and then he would go forward with teaching them about Jesus who would correct, who corrects all of our assumptions about who God is. Um, and so with that in mind, I, I do want to bring up a, a verse from John, and that's John 1.18. John 1.18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. And then we'll bring this out. He, I believe, is Jesus. Jesus has made him known. And, and so I think we can get in that wise and understanding category, in quotes, air quotes, when we get, either our minds get all twisted and warped or we're, we're uh, misled by the world about who God is. And those things are, are false and totally opposite of who God really is. And so what I would encourage us all is to, to turn our eyes upon Jesus, basically, and look to him because he corrects all those misunderstandings. And we can truly see who God is and accept God for who he is when we look in Jesus and his ministry. Yeah. You know, the, there, there are two characters in the, the Gospels that really make me, that really associate with the wise and prudent for me. It's Peter when he looked at Jesus and said, no, I'm not going to let you die. Mm -hmm. it's, it's Peter saying, I know what's best for Jesus. Mm -hmm. And that's so brazen and so uh, uh, audacious to say that to the Son of God. And then I think about the, the um, tax collector praying at the temple. A guy who's up there praying, and his prayer says nothing about God, praises God for nothing, thanks God for nothing, makes no requests of God. His prayer is, Lord, I'm glad I'm better than this guy. That's the wise and prudent. That's the arrogance, the pride of the wise and prudent. And the converse of that are the individuals who are willing, like the, uh, the, I said the tax collector praying, I meant the Pharisee praying. Yeah. The tax collector goes in there and prays, and he, and he won't even look in the direction of heaven. His prayer is, forgive me, I'm a sinner. You know, his, his prayer is different. It's that recognition that I'm not worthy. The way we become like children uh, in this message of Jesus is, is by not asserting ourselves above Christ and not asserting our will above Christ. The message of Jesus was always deny yourself, deny yourself, deny yourself, and he lived up to it when he was in the garden and said, not my will, but yours be done. That's abandoning the wise and prudent in order to be the babe. And so it, it takes that level of humility, that level of selflessness, and that willingness uh, to deny oneself to be able to, to meet that standard. Or to bring up, bring up your thought from Philippians 3, it's like Paul, he had, to, he had to consider all those earthly accomplishments as trash, as rubbish, right. in order to gain Christ. And yeah. so, um, so we've got to be willing to do that. Mm -hmm. well, wise and prudent that you look at here, just like you've been saying, they are self-sufficient in and of themselves. And so when I look at ourselves today as, as Christians tonight, the question is, 
Are you a Christian who has forgotten they need Christ? And unfortunately, I think there are a lot of Christians who think they have arrived to the point that they aren't, you know, they're not close to the need of the grace that the people near them need. All these people around me are, are hooligans, so they really need God. I'll just take a little bit. I know I'm an easy burden for Jesus to bear. I think, unfortunately, whether you talk that way, do you think that way about yourself? Do you think that, you know, you're really not that hard for Jesus to uh, deal with? When in actuality, you're just as difficult as anybody else around you, and you need just as much grace as anybody else around you. And without that grace, you couldn't do anything that you do. And that's the wise and, the, and, and prudent and the babe. So understanding the babe is somebody that's just completely dependent on a, on a father, on a mother, on someone to take care of, on someone to provide. And so there's the opposite. And, and Jesus is, is seeking followers that are wholly and solely dependent on him. Not on their own wisdom, not on their own abilities, not on their own greatness, but are woefully in need of him. That's why he says in Mark, I've, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so our last question tonight in verses uh, 20, 23 and 24, Jesus says, Blessed are the eyes that see the things you see. For I tell that many prophets, kings, have desired to see what you see, have not seen it, and hear to what... Hear to, and hear what you hear and not heard it. So the last question tonight as we close is, how easy is it for us to take what Jesus is doing in, in our lives for granted? Something we mentioned a little bit earlier. How do we keep from becoming numb to the greatness of Jesus? Um, this may be also connected with the question, uh, the formal question. Uh, Romans chapter 10, verse, uh, verse 1 through, uh, I mean, 2 and 3, uh, Apostle Paul is talking about the Jews who had the, a very serious problem. He says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to, the, according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteous, righteousness. So I read this uh, as uh, Paul talking about uh, self-righteousness. If we fall into self-righteousness, thinking that, oh, I'm great, I'm, I'm right, you know, I'm all right, I'm doing great, you know, I'm keeping all, all the, you know, commandments of the book, and then we can be like really foolish uh, people in God's eyes. Even though we have fervor and diligence to do something like good, but actually we are not doing God's will, but we may be doing what we want to do, what we want to be proud of. So self-righteousness is really something that uh, makes us foolish. If one is proud, I mean, so proud, uh, then, you know, 
then he can do anything, anything foolish. I mean, if he's not so prou uh, proud of himself, he would not do such a thing. But if one is so proud of himself, he would do such a thing that all people can know that he is so, so full. So self-righteousness makes us full. And, so, and also, if we have self-righteousness, we would appreciate ourselves. Oh, I did great. Instead of, oh, Jesus, thank you. God, thank you to let me do the, uh, for letting me do this because I'm your servant. So self-righteousness takes the glory of God away from us. So we have to, very, we have to be very careful about that. Verse 23 of Luke chapter 10, Jesus gave a beatitude. He said, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. He's speaking specifically to the disciples. You'll see that he, this is a private statement he made to the disciples. Assumedly, that includes the, the, the 72 or so. It includes at least the 12, but maybe even the 72 that he had just sent out. But I started thinking, what, what did they see? Remember that report from the 72? They saw demons responding. They had been, given, they had been commissioned earlier back in verse 9 to heal the sick. What they saw were, were people's lives changing because of Christ. You want to, to stop being numb to the greatness of Jesus? Find a way to help change people's lives because of Christ. You want to not be numb to the greatness of Jesus? Then involve yourself in someone's life and allow Jesus Christ to change their life through you. You won't be numb to the greatness of Jesus if you do that. And I would, I'd bring up perspective. Verse 24 tells me perspective. And understanding and knowledge of history, biblical history, or just history in general, that brings perspective. That's what Jesus seems to be saying. You know how many prophets and kings, people like Isaiah and David, long to see what you get to see? Mm -hmm. Um you know, here we are on the other side of the cross of Christ, the resurrection. How many of those, you know, who lived before that would have longed to have seen what we see? How many before the printing press came along or uh, <laughs> before apps yes. are on our phones would have longed to have the Bible at our fingertips like we've got? Um, and so perspective. And then one other thing I would add is, is just uh, is continued thanksgiving. And um, I appreciate it in a spiritual disciplines class. Um, last summer, Kyle had us each each week sharing a Thanksgiving, that something we're thankful with to, about to God, and getting beyond the the, the everyday simple things we see. Um, may God give us the eyes to see those really rich blessings that sometimes go unnoticed. You know, tonight as we close, if 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 it is the case that you've become numb to the greatness of Jesus, it may be because you're hanging out with too many wise and prudent people instead of the babes. Because when you're with the babes, they'll tell you how great Jesus is. They'll tell you what Jesus has done in their life. They'll talk to you about uh, how amazing Jesus is and all the things that he has done in their life, and it is impossible to avoid the greatness of Jesus. But when you're hanging out with a bunch of 
wise and prudent people who don't need Jesus anymore, well, now, duh, you're not going to see the greatness of Jesus anymore because you're going to become just like them that's become numb to the greatness of our Savior. Tonight, there isn't going to be an official uh, invitation song where you're asked to come forward as together we stand and sing or anything like that. I saw some people just out of habit stand up. But uh, the invitation of the Lord is always asked. It's always open. It's always uh, given to us whenever we need the need. Matthew chapter 11, 28 through 30. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's what Jesus says to each and every one of us tonight. So if there's something that you're going through in your life that you need to talk about with someone, if, if, if you have sin in your life, if, if you want to obey the gospel and you want to know what more, or more about what that means and you want to study with someone, if, if you need encouragement or you need comfort in any way, seek that out tonight among your brothers and sisters here. Uh, come talk to one of us. Come talk to one of the elders. Talk to someone you love and you trust, and I know that they'll be able to help you out. We've really enjoyed uh, Luke's Urgent Care, Medicine for the Soul. It's amazing how the Holy Spirit can pack such powerful messages in just a few short verses. We hope that this has, has, has grown your, your love for God's Word, your love for, for God's Son, and uh, your love for for opening up the text and studying it each and every day. Let's close in a word of prayer. Have you all have a great week. Our new most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for uh, this opportunity to come together tonight and to sing some, some hymns and uh, some praise to you earlier. And uh, thank you so much for this period of, of study, of discussion, uh, opening up your word and, and looking to it to glean some messages into our lives. Uh, we pray that uh, we'll always be grateful for opportunities like these, that we'll take the uh, opportunities and uh, do our best to apply them into our life. Lord, thank you so much for the book of Luke and all of these powerful messages packed into such short passages. And We pray that uh, we can remember some of the things that we've heard over the last couple of months and uh, really apply them to our life and understand that uh, if we need it, or if if we are in need of 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 healing, if we are in need of of care, that we will come to the great physician, and your Son Jesus Christ. We pray that you'll be with us as a congregation, that you'll be with those who are hurting, that you'll be with those who are struggling, that you'll be with those who feel abandoned, who feel ostracized, who feel silenced, or or pushed aside in any way, Lord, that, that you'll be with them and that you'll comfort them and that you'll love them the way only you can, Lord. We pray that you be with our elders and that you'll be with them as they make decisions and as they lead us. We pray that they'll be godly men who seek the truth and they seek to speak it in love. Lord, thank you so much for uh, this congregation. We pray that you'd help us grow, first of all, spiritually and that second of all, we can grow as we continue to reach out to this community and continue to go and do. We pray that we will see fruit from our labor and that the harvest can be uh, truly reaped among us. Lord, forgive us of our sins. Help us to glorify you and praise your name in everything that we say and everything that we do and everything that we think this week.
Bring us back at the next point of time. In Jesus' name we pray.